Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. 2020 has created a unique situation for engaged couples. Given social distancing concerns, many have decided to postpone their weddings. But if your relationship is ready, would you be better off getting married this year anyway? In this episode, Trishal and Aaron explore the intersection of tax planning and getting married. They discuss the impact of different tax brackets, the marriage incentive or marriage penalty, and community property versus separate property states. They then highlight estate planning concerns, which can also depend on where you live. Your relationship should still be the defining factor in whether to get married, but it is worth understanding some vital tax effects beforehand. With solid planning, you might even save enough to cover the cost of your honeymoon. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trishal Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron, great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. So over the last couple months, I've talked to a few people, both clients, kind of coworkers, although I don't know if it's, not, it's more like professional colleagues and even peers who were planning on getting married this year. And because of COVID, they could not have their wedding and they said, you know, we're just going to postpone and push it off a year. And one of the things they've asked me recently is because they were already ready to get married in terms of their relationship, they asked, does it make any financial sense to have a small city hall ceremony before the end of the year or should they just go on with their plans of getting married the following year it's it was covid brought up this unusual thing where the vast majority of time kind of relationship dictates when you should get married or choose not to get married and i hadn't really seen these kind of opportunities for strategic marriage but this year it's happened it I know at least three cases where they were planning on getting married this year and they didn't. So relationship-wise, they're ready for marriage. And now they actually do have this strange opportunity of strategic marriage. And my first first thought was, I just, I have no idea. We need to figure this out. But my second thought was like, I, I know conceptually that people will look at married filing jointly versus married separate versus filing individually and at certain income levels or uh, differences in income between husband and wife or married partners, depending on the state you're in, that there are times there's something called like a marriage penalty. This idea that it makes you financially worse off to be married than if you were not marrying filing singly. And there are other times where there are marriage benefits, that there are true financial and tax reasons to get married. So today I want to kind of talk with Trishel, just kind of this, this concept 
of, from a financial perspective, are there strategic opportunities when it comes to marriage, taking advantage of specific tax laws of married filing jointly versus separate versus head of household versus not being married and filing singly. So I, I don't think we're going to get into relationship or other protection aspects like being beneficiaries, although we might. And I, we're not necessarily going to get into why are there tax benefits to getting married and kind of the history behind that, although again, it could come up. I think we're just trying to focus on understanding what that difference, what it looks like today. So if you had a choice to get married end of 2020 or waiting until 2021, what are some of the financial ramifications and repercussions? So Trisha, when you think of it from that perspective, that's like, have, should we get married this year or continue our plan to wait until we have a big ceremony? What are some of the first things that come to mind for you? Well, the, the big one is what you keyed in on in your introduction, Aaron. And it's this notion of, do you file a joint return or do you each file separate returns? And filing a joint return is one of the big things that stands out if you're married, the ability to combine your incomes into one and file it as one household. And that there is some sort of benefit that you could potentially obtain by being allowed to do that. It's this notion that your amount of tax that you might pay could go down a good amount by having this ability. And there are various ways that you can file with the federal government. You can file as single, you can file as married, but filing separately. There's also a separate set of tax brackets for estate and trust, but it turns out more often than not, the most beneficial way to file is married filing jointly. Now, that's not always true, but there is a, a good understanding that this set of tax brackets was put in place for married couples for the specific reason of encouraging couples to get married and form families. And, and this is a notion that's being encouraged by our government by having most likely or more often than not a favorable tax situation. So the government is incentivizing marriage, financially incentivizing marriage. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, very roughly, can you describe kind of what what are those some of those benefits? Like I know uh, deductions are higher for married filing jointly than single, but I think it's exactly double for the standard deduction. Uh, there's two separate tax brackets for married filing jointly and single. So what are some of the other differences to think about when we are looking at those different filing statuses? The big one is those brackets. And the notion there is if you're married, you have these brackets that have wider bands, meaning your income ranges can double. To be more specific, for example, let's say you're married and you're in the 22% tax bracket, well, here your income can range from 80,000 to 171,000 ish for 2020. Whereas if you're single, it's about half that, about 40,000 to 85,000. 
Now, what that means is if you're, let's say you're single and you have a 90 or $100,000 income, well, then your marginal tax rate at that point is 24%. You're in the 24% tax bracket, which is 85 to 163,000. But if you decide to get married and your spouse at that time does not have an income, well, then your income is still 100,000 for you and your spouse. But what that means is your tax situation will be in the 22% tax bracket now. Now, the, the tricky part is if your spouse decides to get a job and starts earning income, well, she's going to be taxed at your marginal tax rate. So even though she's earning, let's say, less than 10000 like 5000 a year, if she was single, she would be in the 10% tax bracket. But now that she's married to you, she's going to be taxed at the combined rate. So her tax bracket will go up. So you can see how there's some winners and losers in this situation. But on average, the ability to combine incomes and then be taxed at one overall tax bracket is meant to provide an incentive. It's meant to work out more often than it doesn't in terms of lowering your tax situation. Okay. So my wife makes more money than I do. And by, if she was filing single, she'd probably be in a higher tax bracket, but married filing jointly, the tax rate on her income comes down, but the tax rate on my income is likely going up. And we would kind of need to calculate that, that net difference. Is that that what you're saying? Yeah, you have to do a little bit of math, but it's essentially designed to come out that you're each better off if you are married versus if you're each separately and then you add up how much you each pay. So for the individual, one may be better and one may be worse, but when you combine it, hopefully you're combined better off than you would be if you took up all the money you would pay if filed separately and you added that together. And that kind of makes sense because we are applying a lower rate on the higher dollar value of my wife's income. And so even though my rate that I'm paying on my income is going up, it's on the lesser dollar value. Right. And and this can be kind of pronounced, for example, if you're in the big jump with tax brackets goes when you go from the 24% bracket to the 32 and if you're single, that's if you're above 163000 So if you're making 300000 a good part of your income is being taxed at 32%. Whereas if you just get married, that means all of your income will be taxed at the 24% tax bracket or less, assuming your spouse doesn't bump you up into that higher bracket. So at 300000 you're roughly paying an extra... on $130,000 or so going that from that 32 to 24 if you're single versus married. So at that income level, getting married saves you just on brackets, $10,000 per year. Yeah. 
And this notion is, again, just put in place by the government to provide some sort of incentive to, to form families. Yeah, okay. Okay. And, and uh, is, the, is the brackets the main kind of benefit or is that like kind of where the, the math tends to lie? Well, that, that's one of the key ones. And there are a handful of others that we should probably mention. So one big one that I kind of see is when you're buying and selling your first home. So for that, if, you, if you're selling a home, then you have actually the ability to not pay taxes on the first 250000 of gain on that home if you're single. But if you're married, that jumps to 500. So that it can be potentially a very large saving. Okay. So when you're selling your primary residence, I believe you have to have lived there at least two of the last five years, then you can exclude, if you're single, up to $250,000 of gain. So your house can go from $500,000 to $750,000 and you don't pay any taxes on that gain. But if it goes to $800,000, you would owe taxes on about 50,000 of gain if you're single. But if you're married and that house goes from 500 to 800, that entire $300,000 is tax-free. And in fact, if you go you can go all the way up to a million dollars and get that exclude $500,000 of capital gain from your taxes. Yeah, that in itself could outweigh that, that marginal difference that we talked about with the, with the tax brackets, depending on a given situation. Of course, you have to see those gains, which can take time, but it's quite possible over a lifetime that, that you could ha see this. And it, if I'm not mistaken, you can just do this again and again, as long as it's your first home. As long as it's your primary residence. Primary I think that's residence. the, the that's key factor. Again, you have, right. you have to have lived there two of the last five years. Right. It, now, now that does mean, yeah, that does mean in theory, you could have rented it out for three of those five past five years as well. That That is allowed. But yeah, you must have lived there for two out of the last five. Okay. Okay. Any other financial benefits when it comes to taxes that, are kind of some of those big ones. There is also some notion that we've discussed in the past with estate taxes and gift taxes. So for example, if you're gifting and you're single and you have a kid and you want to gift, you could gift 15,000 a year without having that 15,000 be subject to your lifetime gifts tax exemption amount, which is currently around 11.5 million. Meaning if you gift more than 11.5 million over the course of your lifetime, then any amount over that 11.5 million at the federal level, you would be taxed a gift tax of 40% of the amount that you gift. So that's a good amount that you could potentially gift. And uh, a lot of people may not be concerned because they may, they may be thinking, okay, I'm never going to gift more than 11.5 million ish. Now we, we've talked about this before that that exemption amount has gone up and up over time. And, you know, it used to be a few hundred thousand, then a million, then two, then five, and now 10, 11 million. 
but th there is a chance that if we do see uh, regime change, um, I'm pausing for a second because when this goes out the door, <laughs> well, honey, well, well <laughs> this is what like fun with podcast time travel. We're recording this in October, so we don't know the results of the election. But by the time you're listening to it, you will know the results of the of the election. Right. So, um, with the election, there could be a change. Now that the election is done, there could be a change. <laughs> so if you're that listening lowers, to this and you right. know who the president is, who the president-elect is, and who will be controlling Congress come next year, both the House and the Senate, then you can use that information accordingly regarding any potential changes in gift and estate tax. Right. So... It, uh, currently, it's around 11.5 million. There is some understanding that if the Democrats take control and they implement what they want to, that that 11.5 million may drop back down to something like five, six. Nobody knows for sure, but that's roughly what might be anticipated by, by folks following these types of things. But nevertheless, uh, where I started is if you give 15,000 or less and you're single, no problem. You can give that to as many individuals over in a given year as you would like without it impacting that lifetime gift tax exemption amount. And when you get married, that number doubles. So all of a sudden you and your spouse can gift each 15,000 to your son. So now you can over your lifetime in theory, now that you're a married couple, gift twice the amount that you could without impacting this gift tax. And if now that again, now that you're married, it just basically doubles the amount that you could have done otherwise. Okay. Okay. Uh, are there any examples of situations you've seen where you've kind of not necessarily done the math yourself, but seen okay, there might be some kind of opportunity or strategic decision we we should bring in a CPA to kind of actually do the math for us. Yeah, so as a first order approximation, you just want to see if you're in the ballpark for this being a concern. And again, you, you can kind of do the math to see where, you know, network stands and compare that against these exemption amounts. And sometimes one thing I want to throw in is sometimes you want to understand that the exemption amount is for that 11.5 million is if you're single, it actually doubles if you're married. So that, that's another key thing about marriage where instead of 11.5 million, you can double that to around 23-ish million. And what that means is if your estate is below that amount, then you likely will not need to worry too much about this notion of gift tax or estate tax. So estate tax is just gifts that are given after the person who owns the assets passes away. So in that case, that, that inherited amount of 23 million, again, if you're far away from that, that may not, you may not need to call that CPA. But also with the understanding that that 23 million may also drop if, if the Democrats have their way, then again, if you're close to like 10 or 11 million, then you may not need to or if you're far away from 10 or 11 million, then you may not need to worry about the estate tax. 
And again, if you're near that amount, then yes, you may need to call a CPA and then think about a strategy also with an estate plan. So you may need to get an attorney involved along with a planner to kind of coordinate what's the best way to, to handle a transfer of this estate in a tax efficient manner. Okay. A couple of examples that, I, that I've seen, again, just the concept of thinking about marriage from a financial perspective. I have uh, one friend or cu- friend, two friends or couples, they both make between 100 and 150. So kind of they were both going to be in that kind of 24% bracket, whether it was si- filing single or if they were to marry and filing joint, kind of the brackets were close enough, but I believe when when I strongly recommend they they talk to a CPA, or I think they might have done it themselves and didn't want to pay the cost of CPA. It is actually because she had children from a prior marriage when she was filing. She's filing as head of household, not single, and the higher standard deduction for head of household versus single actually made a little bit of financial sense for them not to get married. Now, again, there's a lot of other relationship and personal decisions that go into that, but there, there was kind of that small marriage penalty that is possible that their taxes would have gone up if they had gotten married and married fine jointly because they were making similar incomes and at similar rates and looking at that different standard deduction came into play. Another situation with a client, this, again, they were ready to get married this year, but because of COVID, they didn't. He actually, his company went IPO. And one of the things we looked at was, could any of the, married filing jointly benefits help out the overall tax situation. And in this case, it's going to actually be a large AMT issue because it was a lot of incentive stock options. And anytime you're dealing with ISOs, you have to pay a lot of attention to AMT. Would married filing jointly help that or would it not be worth it? And when the CPA did the calculation, it turned out because she's also working, the there is a benefit. The taxes owed kind of on the stock issue would come down slightly, but now bringing her income into his tax brackets actually hurt them more. So in this particular case, they're, they're going to get married next year, but it was one of these cases we did look at should you like, is there a financial reason to get married this year? And it turns out that it, there wasn't, that actually it was going to be a, another, again, another small marriage penalty. And I use these as examples of most of the time marriage filing jointly provides a lot of benefits, but it's not consistent enough to make that a blanket assumption that it almost always makes sense to, to, to do just some, basic calculations or even just looking at a little bit. And if you're close enough, bringing in a CPA or 
uh, playing around with TurboTax and kind of filing two or three different returns to see what it what the differences could be. Because there there are times where your taxes actually can go up by married filing jointly, or it could also be that in this particular case, because the IPO happened this year, a lot of the ISO and AMT issues are coming into play this year. It would have hurt them this year, but in following years, when there's less tax of uh, stock events, then it's being mostly based on their income and salaries. Marrying filing jointly in the brackets do help them. I like that example. It certainly shows a case where it's not a, a slam dunk to just get married and file your taxes and then just be a better off and. That certainly shows a, a good thing to think about that it's just a case where, again, the law was intended to provide a benefit, but whoops, um, you know, there's, here's a situation where it doesn't quite do that. There's also another situation that I want to highlight that if you're married, you may also need to, or once you get married, you may need to update your withholding from your, your paycheck if you're your spouse has a considerable different higher income, for example, meaning your current paycheck has a withholding that's meant to withhold a sensible amount based upon your current estimated tax bracket. But if, if that changes based upon either a large income stream coming from your spouse or the fact that just your spouse has a higher income, that may need to be updated. The notion here is that if you end up at the end of the year with a large deviation between the amount of taxes that you actually paid through these withholdings throughout the year and the actual amount that you should or you will need to pay based upon your final income once the chips settle, well, then you could be charged interest by the government for not paying enough over the course of the year. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, and that's one thing that I've had to actually have my CPA do in the past is, okay, we brought our, for my salary when I was working at a prior firm, put my exemptions at zero. I put it at single and still withholding another $400 per paycheck, I think. Uh, like, And the CPAs can do the calculation relatively easily. And in general, it makes things just a little bit easier if you have the withholding taken from your paycheck rather than making quarterly payments. Just the way withholdings work, the paycheck withholdings are kind of considered uniform throughout the year. So every now and then, if there's, especially for stock events, sometimes there's timing issues. And you're supposed to kind of do the withholding or the estimated tax payment within the time frame of the stock event. But if you do the withholding through your pay stub, then it's considered uniform throughout the year. So most of the time, I do recommend to clients that if they're if they are owing each year and or looking at some of the withholding penalties, increasing your withholdings on your paycheck, and it, I believe it's relatively relatively simple calculation for a CPA. And just start that throughout the year. So again, your cash flow looks and feels the same throughout the year. You get the same take-home pay each paycheck with each paycheck, and you make sure you're withholding enough. But yeah, just assuming zero exemptions and single will cover your withholdings is not always the case. 
Right. Yeah. And also similar with income, there's this notion of what happens to the actual property that each individual has both before they get married and then while they're married. And it's interesting because the, the law does treat these things separately and it also treats them separately or differently. I shouldn't use separately because I'm going to confuse. Because <laughs> that's going to be a very important word coming up soon. <laughs> right. The, the law thinks of these things differently depending on actually which state you happen to live in. So the notion I'm trying to bring up here is this notion of community property versus separate property. And to kind of first define what these things mean and then put it into context, when you think about property, when you're single, all the property that you have is your own. But when you get married, there is this notion that the property that you have could, in theory, be shared. In fact, if you're a house with a husband and wife, the notion here is that there is some sharing that likely goes on between your assets. So then how do these assets get divided in the eyes of the law? It's an important question. And the way this kind of gets figured out is with this notion of separate property and community property. And that's actually defined by which state you happen to live in. So do you live in a state that is a separate property state? And do you live in a state that's a community property state? So first, I'll begin with the notion of separate property, and then I'll fold in what the notion of community property means in the context. So in a separate property state, this actually represents most states except for nine, and I'll relate what the nine community property states are in just a moment. But for most states, you live in a separate property state. And what this kind of means is, before you get married, of course, all of your property separate. It's owned by you. You're married. You're single. You're not married. But when you're married, the property still stays single, assuming that you're on the deed and it's signed to you. So property is basically defined in a separate property state when you're married as what's on the actual title or deed. Is it you, is it your wife, or is it combined? And that's what decides who actually owns the property while you're married in a separate property state. And I believe most of the time when people think of, oh, we both own it, if you're in a separate property state, technically you're owning it jointly. I believe that's the, the key word. And they kind of treat it as you each own half. Right. Yeah, this is... What's common, for, or I'm going to avoid the word common as well. <laughs> <That's also good. laughs> this is what happens Usual. usually in most states known as separate property states. But then there are a handful of states known as community property states. And in these states, they actually have built into the law that all property obtained while you're married is owned by both the husband and the, the wife equally, or both spouses, I should say, equally. Now, what that means is if you're single and you purchase a house and then you get married and your income still supports the upkeep of that house, now that you're married and you live in a community property state, any income that went to further 
create equity in that home is actually owned jointly by you and your spouse. And then, of course, any property that you personally buy or your spouse per personally purchases with whoever's income is owned equally by both of you in a community property state by default. And the community property states are Arizona, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, Wisconsin, and, and Aaron, California. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an important thing to understand if you live in one of these states that you may be thinking that, you know, that new motorcycle you bought or that, that new luxury car you bought with your own money is, is yours when you're married, but in fact, you may only own half of it. In the past, I've actually had to help a client figure out what it's actually what's called a more Marsden calculation. It's a specific calculation and the algorithm was determined by court cases in divorce that looks at one individual owns a property, gets married, that a property uh, starts, begins, uh, sorry, property continues to appreciate in value and they later get divorced or one passes away. And there are specific calculations for how to calculate kind of that growth. And again, accounting for things like maintenance and paying down mortgage. So the growth in the equity as it's attributable to both halves of the community property versus what was individually owned coming into the marriage. So there've been enough of these cases that there's a pretty well-established algorithm calculation to kind of settle a lot of these cases. And it, it, when it comes to community property in general, it works, like you said, like kind of both people own the whole thing, whereas in separate property states, each owns half. And Trisha, correct me if this, this sounds wrong or this sounds right. In a separate property state, it would be comparable to, you each own half, comparable to a tenants in common where two people who aren't married and maybe aren't even in a relationship, two friends or business partners buy a property together, they each own half, and that's considered a tenants in common, that's more or less the same when it comes to separate property within a marriage, that there is no assumption that the two unrelated people own or have access to the entire thing. They, they each own half. And if it's maintained that way, or if the other assets come in and were bought by a married couple in a separate property state, it's still considered that they each own half perspective. Yeah, I believe so. We can fact check that uh, that particular point about the tenants in common in the show notes, but that is my understanding. The other thing to also bring into the fold is, so you, you did mention divorce, and that's kind of where these issues kind of come to light in terms of who owns what you can imagine. If you're still married, then, you know, having everything 50-50 is, you know, all copacetic. But when when a divorce comes up, then you have these situations where you're in a community property state and one spouse, let's say, 
you know, you, you, you have um, all these professional sports players or movie stars with super high incomes. And then you have a spouse who, you know, maybe is a, a stay at home dad or something like that. Well, technically that, that stay at home father is in a community property state, uh, the owner of 50% of the wealth that was created during marriage by, by the other spouse. Unless, uh, of course, that there might be some sort of written document, like a, a prenup put in place that, that might go around some of these standard assumptions that are put in place by the law. So that, that's where you may see a prenup come up, for example. I think the most high profile situation there was Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Scott, right? the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos. They were married for a long time and the vast majority of the growth of Amazon came during their marriage and half of it was hers. And so she, that's kind of, she contributed to the household net worth growth, even though he was the CEO of Amazon, their overall net worth as a household combined grew into the billions and was split appropriately as she owned half and he owned half when they got divorced, I believe last year. Right. Yeah. I, I believe that created the, or she ended up being the, the wealthiest woman on the planet. And there's some kind of sexism in journalism of she was already the wealthiest woman in the world, but it took the divorce to kind of get society to recognize that. Right. That's true too. And the the notion is if you're in these types of situations, it's probably worth just understanding where you, where you are might impact how this kind of flows out. But, you know, that there is a benefit to being in a community property state as well. It's not all worry or concern. There's also this notion that you could get a benefit as your estate passes from a husband to a wife, should the husband pass away first, or to the wife to the husband, or basically one spouse to another. And this is with the notion that we talked about I was going to say eons ago, but <laughs> maybe earlier this year when we discussed estate planning. And, and this is with the notion of step up in basis. Mm-hmm. This is one of the really cool things of living in California, the, the <laughs> yeah. double step up in basis. It, it is really cool. And it can provide a, a pretty tangible benefit for, for being married, frankly, and being able to pass on assets to a spouse. And the notion is in a separate property state, Property, again, could be under either spouse or held jointly. But what happens when one spouse passes away is that the other spouse obtains the assets of the deceased spouse. And if the assets are held jointly, then the surviving spouse will receive a half step up in basis on the actual capital gains that are owned. Meaning, for example, when we talk about step up in basis, it's the taxes that must be paid, or sorry, uh, capital gains taxes kind of get reset when assets pass from one person to another person. Mm-hmm. And the, you, the way you're you can, getting a step up in basis only for the deceased spouse's half. 
Right. That that's right. In a separate property state, assuming that it was held jointly. Mm -hmm. So the benefit is, if you're in a community property state, you get this full step up in basis on all property held between the couple because it's all held communally, meaning both husband and wife own a hundred percent each of the assets. Mm -hmm. And if you had, let's say, a hundred thousand in capital gains and the the husband passed away and that stock went all to the wife, well, that hundred thousand would be wiped out and you would, the wife would be able to sell that stock and pay zero. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it was held jointly in a separate property state, well, that hundred thousand, only half of that hundred thousand would get the step up. So you would still own owe taxes on 50,000. Mm -hmm. And then if that stock continues to go up when the, second spouse passes away, their heirs or beneficiaries again get a step up in basis. And this is the kind of that double step up in basis. Both there's a step up in basis when it one spouse passes away and it passes to the surviving spouse. And then a second step up in basis when that surviving spouse eventually passes away. Right. So if if you're married, you get this benefit of being able to kind of reset the capital gains of all of the assets held by you and your husband if you live in a community property state. And if you live in a separate property state, you may not receive this entire benefit. There are things you can do to be better off than you would otherwise. But I think for specifics on that, you may need to check out that other episode on estate planning that we talked about. Yeah. So is there anything that you are actually going to do or change in response to our conversation, considering that you are married and live in a separate property state? Well, so in terms of having the ability to get a half step of in basis, that, that's kind of better than nothing. But if there was the potential to understand that, for example, I may pass away first, if we did transfer all the assets to myself, then in theory, and I did end up passing away, then my wife could potentially get the full step up in basis. So that, that's mm. one way to do it. You have to transfer the assets, you know, not when I'm on my, I'm, this is kind of morbid, <laughs> not when I'm on my deathbed, but I, two or three least, years prior. I believe for this one, this is one year. There are other okay. estate planning lookbacks that are longer, two, three, five. But for this one, I believe it's a year. And it's okay. known as the, the boomerang rule. But again, with, with things like this, also, it's best to consult with a, a professional about your specific situation. Yeah, there, there are unfortunately probably more times where transferring assets to one spouse has hurt the spouse transferring away assets than they've benefited from estate planning. So there's you get to kind of certain protections and liabilities that it may not be worth it. Kind of the, the reason I asked the question was, I mean, given all of this, I'm still going to stay married to my wife and nothing about that's going to change. Well, I guess, I guess because we live in a community property state, I don't have to think about it that much. Like I, there's, there's not those extra level of planning to even consider. 
Yeah, that, that's true. You know, it, it did cross my mind. Why don't we just move to California? <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's far more than just this one decision, especially since hopefully I have a bit more runway left. Yeah, I, I think that that that's a good point. I, whenever these questions come up, the relationship and personal aspects are almost always so much more important than the financial aspects. Like th- th- there might be some marginal planning opportunity for some people. And that's kind of why we're talking about today is that I never got, I didn't get the question for the last decade. It was only this year in particular that they started asking that question. Everyone, I want to get married to my fiance to be future spouse because I want to get married and we want to live together and grow a family and build a life together not because there's a financial incentive and there are i'm seeing more cases of people who are choosing not to get married again not from a financial perspective but because of the relationship aspect so that that almost always dominates the reason of to get married or not not the the financial implications Yeah, that makes sense. I I think a lot of this stuff is kind of good to know. And there may be a special situation here and there where if it does fall under your specific situation, then, you know, it's good to reach out and just have some guidance on that. But Mm -hmm. more often than not, that this will, you know, just kind of make a difference on the margins. Yeah, I agree with that. But I still think it's a it's a good conversation. It's one to at least talk about and think about it, even if it doesn't result in any actual recommendation or advice. Yeah. Well, good, good stuff, Aaron. I enjoyed today's conversation. I did as well. Thank you very much for all the research you did, Trishel. Well, th- thanks, Aaron. And I appreciate everybody listening. If you enjoyed what you're hearing, do spread the word. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.